All right. Can we go to Romans 3 and 14? Time to put the squeeze on again from both flanks of Romans. Please remember that the month of May is our annual food drive for Salvation Army. And another opportunity to be generous to the the needy in our own community. So the list of items are on the information table. Also on the information table, I believe we still have the Mother's Day message, which I consider to be kind of a key message for us at this point because it points forward to where we're going as well as introduces some new things. So tonight may be a little more practical, but it's the Homardiological Catena Part 2. And I'm simply calling the message the universe and what we eat. The universe, that's a big subject. What we eat, that's a little subject. But you'll see how they connect in the two flanks tonight. Romans 3 and verse 10, a few moments Maybe not for you, but for me to prepare. Romans chapter 3, Father, is one of the most magnificent passages because it reveals your viewpoint. It reveals the viewpoint that you have for all of humanity for all time. And we thank you for that, that you granted that to us, because as you said in the scripture, you don't hold things back from your friends. The fact, the very fact that you have granted us the knowledge of your own view demonstrates that you consider us friends. We thank you for that, Father. Grant us the grace to be friends indeed of yours and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us gratitude for the fellowship that we have with the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. Grant us understanding now, because there is none that understands unless you elicit the understanding. We ask these things with persuasive confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to pack up back up slightly and get to where we were last night. This is where Paul gets into what we call a catena or a cascade, a closely linked series of verses from the Psalms and also a few from Isaiah, namely 59, 7, and 8, in which he expresses that all the human race is indicted by God. God looks upon all humanity in all of its times. That's our catchphrase, all of humanity in all of its times. God is omnipresent, which means he's not only present throughout all of what we call space, but he's also present all throughout that which we call time. And therefore, God alone is able to survey and assess all of humanity, in fact, all of creation in all of its times, all of its sequences, all of its seasons, all of its settings. And he's able to see and view all of humankind in all of their motives, 
all of their intentions, all of their impulses and desires, seeing inward and outward. And as Psalm 14.2 says in Psalm 53.2, Yahweh looked down from heaven. And this is the assessment that he made of all of humankind in all of its times in Adam. All of these descriptive verses still pertain to those who insist on living in the Adamic ontology or the man of the passé age. We live at the juncture of two ages. The night is far spent. The day is at hand as Romans 13, 11 through 13 teaches. Because we live in the juncture of two ages, we need to be fitted with spectacles with lenses that see both ages and understand them. And we need a radical transformation, epistemological transformation, a radical new way of knowing goes with the new oncoming age. This, then, is God's assessment. And what Paul does here in Romans is he develops a universal homardiology, showing that all the human race is under the power, the supra-human power of sin, which sets up for a universal Christological soteriology or the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. When you put these two together, there's little room or no room for Christians to either judge one another or despise one another. And as we said last night, he's using the same rationale as Jesus did. Let those without, let the one without sin throw the first stone. There's a lot of stone throwing going on in Rome among the saints. And Paul is trying to get everyone to disarm of the stones and put on the full armor of God against that which is not a flesh and blood enemy. So here is what he's speaking with the teacher. And in verse 9, as we've seen before, just before I left, we dealt with Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, where Paul says, you and I both, teacher, have previously, that means in their dialogue in Romans, but it also means in their careers as Jewish teachers, Jewish Christian teachers. We have used the scriptures to show that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. All are under sin. And that means that the entire human race in Adam is under a suprahuman power, which no matter how far they strain or stretch or try, they cannot extract themselves from it. The only thing that's stronger than the suprahuman power of sin is the superior power of grace. So Paul takes this teacher down what we call a waterfalls. He grabs the teacher and grabs him down so that they go down this cascade of verses together. And he kind of makes this guy agree with him. So we have in verse 10, I'll just pick up last night because this is really the headline verse that describes all the rest or is a motto that covers all the way from 310 to 318. I'll read it all now. As it is written, Paul says, there is not a righteous person, no, 
Not even one. Very emphatic here. This is God's assessment. Remember, this is from Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Repeat it again in Psalm 53, 1 through 3. And it always starts with this. Yahweh looked down from heaven on the sons of men, or the whole of the human race. He sees all of the human race diachronically in all of its times in simultaneity. And those are the two key words that you'll see on the message from Sunday. Diachronic and simultaneous. He sees all of the human race in all of its times. And this is very important in terms of salvation too. Because he saves and recapitulates all of human race in all of its times in Christ Jesus. But as it is written, there is not a righteous person, not even one. Verse 11, there is not one who understands. We know from Jeremiah 9.24, let him boast who, bo- who knows and understands me, says the Lord. There is none who understands, though, which means that if there is understanding of God and of his mercy and of his universally saving love, then that understanding has to be generated by God himself. It must be granted by God himself. Nothing is ours unless we receive it from him. A person can receive nothing unless it comes to him from heaven. John 3.27 and 2 Corinthians 4.7, Paul, 1 Corinthians 4.7, Paul chides the Corinthians by saying, if all that you have is what you've received, then why do you boast as if you earned it? Even our faith is a gift. So he says, there's not one who understands. He keeps saying, not one, not a single one. There is not one who seeks God. And therefore, this is not just an indictment on the heathen, which Romans 1, 18 to 32 is. That's the teacher's sermon indicting the heathen in his own view, in his pagan, the pagans in his view. Paul brings it here universally. There is none who seeks God, none at all. So this is not just an indictment on the heathen, as Romans 1.18.32 says in the Jewish Christian style. He says all of them, talking about the human race in all of its times, seasons, settings, cultures, and sequences, in motives and thoughts, intentionality, mentality, in Adam. All of them, without exception, have deviated at the same time and together simultaneously. There's simultaneity. Because God sees the diachronic history of mankind simultaneously. At the same time and together, they have become depraved, worthless. There is not one who does right by acting benevolently. That's my expanded translation to capture the sense. There is not one who does right by acting benevolently. Christotes here is a fruit of the spirit, benevolence, Galatians 5.22. Not even a single one. All of this is chosen splendidly and inspiringly by the Holy Spirit, by the Apostle Paul, because he keeps using the single one, not a single one, not a single one. And that sets up Romans 5, where a single one, apart from Adam, 
does a single righteous act which rectifies all who have sinned. So Paul uses a universal homardiology to set up for a universal Christological soteriology in order to apply these two truths to the group biases that are wrecking the unity in Rome. He's speaking peace into this church. All of them without exception now have deviated, says verse 12, at the same time and together they have become depraved. There is not one who does right by acting benevolently, not even a single one. Verse 13, their throat, notice the singular, is an open grave. All the people, one throat, singularly, collectively. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues are vehicles for deceit. That's from Psalm 5, 9. The venom of asps is under their lips. In the Middle Eastern culture, they were aware of cobras and other asps who had a venom sack under the lips of the serpent. And God is saying that people speak with that same kind of toxic venom. We don't have to look far to see that this is kind of like our culture today, with the exception of those who are living by the Spirit. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's from Psalm 140 and verse 3. Their mouth, please note that it's singular. Their mouth, many people, one mouth, is full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 10, 7. 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are wherever they go. And verse 17, and they have not come to know the path of peace. That's Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. They have not come to know the path of peace. Verse 18, there is no reverential awe of God before their eyes. No closely linked series of scriptural verses better describes the pan-human state under sin than the passage I just read to you, Romans 3.10 to 18. This universal homardiology serves as a powerful incentive for the mutually hostile groups in Rome to drop the stones that they're ready to throw at one another. For there are none among them who are without sin. All were in Adam, and God justifies the ungodly. These verses are an inspired interplay of singulars and plurals, which dramatically illustrate the point made in the lead-off verse. There is not a righteous person, not even one. It must also be remembered that this is the assessment of all human beings in all of their times, seasons, and settings in Adam or in the Adamic ontology. The interplay of singulars here and plurals vividly shows that though all of humanity is indicted in this assessment, each and every one 
is complicit with the reign of sin. To be under sin is two things. It is to be enslaved under a suprahuman power. And it is also to be complicit or colluding with that power, either willingly or unwillingly. And therefore, the singular and collective mouth, for example, is full of cursing and bitterness. The interplay of singulars and plurals, the singular and therefore collective throat, one throat, all of humankind, is an open grave. Their plural tongues, though, plural tongues, are vehicles for deceit. Their singular and therefore collective mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, but their plural feet are swift to shed blood. These various observations highlight two things again. One, that all of humanity in all of its times in Adam are under the power of sin. And two, that each and every human being is complicit with sin. So therefore, Ernst Kosemann's observation, universalism and the most radical individualism or individuation are two sides of the same coin here. And I think that's applicable both to homardiology or the study of sin and soteriology, salvation. Universalism and the most radical individuation are two sides of the same coin throughout Romans. Now, what we always want to be aware of is all of this, of course, is written with the light on. By that I mean with the light of the universal Christology, the one man's righteous act that makes all of humanity right, and also the light that Paul will also expound later, that the Spirit acts in each and ultimately in every one to overcome both the power of sin and the individual's complicity with it. Both of these in the Holy Spirit can be overcome. Moreover, it is intriguing that these last verses are taken from Isaiah 59, 7, and 8. 59, 7, and 8. The second and third to the last. Their feet are swift to shed, shed blood. Destruction, destruction and misery are wherever they go, and they have not come to know the path of peace. It's intriguing because later on, Paul also quotes Isaiah 59, but in this case, 59, 20, and 21 in Romans eleven twenty seven, where he announces that God, the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the Liberator, comes out of Zion and takes away the ungodliness from Jacob when he forgives all their sins in the day when he effects the new covenant universally in Israel. So later in the central highlands of Romans, namely eleven twenty seven, Paul will also quote Isaiah fifty nine this time in linkage with Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, where God's unilateral covenant with all of Israel is fulfilled, when the Lord simply removes ungodliness from Jacob and forgives Israel all her sins. For the time being, however, it's important to stress that a universal homardiology or a universal indictment 
of the human race being under sin. That universal homardiology, setting up a universal Christ-centered soteriology, is used by Paul as an effective pastoral incentive to dismantle the hostility rooted in boastful group pride in which one person or one group shows itself to be above others by their beliefs or their practices. Now, this is where it's going to get a little practical because we're going to jump rather abruptly in this case to the right flank of Romans. I have to do this before I get to more, well, more pressing matters. Jumping to the right flank of Romans, we can illustrate this. We've already come in Romans 14 as far as Romans 14.14, where Paul discourages mutual hostility among believers. And we'll pick up now in Romans 14.14, and it'll take the Holy Spirit to teach you how these two passages, Romans 3.10-18 and 14.14-23, are correlative. Romans 14, this is all my translation. Paul says, I know and have been persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if someone considers something to be unclean, then to him it is unclean. Paul is among those who are strong in faith. Remember the groups in Rome, they're ones that are called strong in faith, the ones who are called weak in faith. The ones who are strong in faith are divided into two groups, the so-called strong in faith who have liberty or freedom not to stay with the scruples of the Old Testament in terms of dietary restrictions or the keeping or observing of days and feasts and who at the same time despise, belittle, or even discount the weak in faith who still have convictions with regard to these scruples. Paul, among all believers, has the most wonderful latitude where this comes in. He's phenomenal in his latitude. Paul gets a really bad rap for being an anti-gender, anti-woman, anti-gay-hating person, and he's none of those things at all. He has the most non-judgmental attitude of any writer I've ever read, secular or spiritual. And so here we have Paul is among those who are strong in the faith, but he is of the group of that group who do not belittle or despise those who are the so-called weak in faith, who may still for the time being cling to distinctions between clean and unclean foods. Paul respects the convictions of individuals and leaves the convincing of them about these things to the Lord. There's so much we don't have to strive about and convince people about. In fact, he says in Philippians 3.15, if someone thinks otherwise than all the things I've just told you, God will convince him. That's not my job. God will convince him. It's remarkable how much latitude the apostle allows here, showing us this. He has not been converted from a legalistic Pharisee to a Pharisee of freedom 
where people use their freedom to run roughshod over people. He has not been converted from a Pharisee of legalism to a Pharisee of so-called freedom. He knows that he is what he is by the grace of God that overpowered his sinfulness. That's what he knows. I am what I am by the grace of God. Kind of like Paul, kind of like Popeye. I am what I, never mind. You have to be a, a, a person of a certain age to appreciate Popeye. And Popeye wailed the daylights out of Brutus or Bluto every week, and it didn't turn me violent. But you get all these little foppish programs, and kids want to be violent now. I don't understand that, but anyways. That's because, of course, uh, I'm still a believer that the Stalinist manifesto is still in vogue, and that part of that manifesto is to eradicate the male from the Western culture, because how easy it would be to conquer them then, wouldn't it? Let's eradicate the male from the culture. So, anyways, that's a different thing. If you're a male and you want to remain a male and everybody thinks that you're toxic because you're masculine, there's only one thing I can tell you to do. Resist. All right. Don't apologize for your testosterone. Apologize if you're harassing people. Yeah, that's evil. That's wicked. That's not of God and that's not man. That's not manly. But Paul did have a little verse in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to the men in Corinth who were a little bit too fastidious about braiding their hair and wearing jewelry and mutilating their bodies and doing all kinds of other things and taking way too much time to get ready for the day. He simply says, act like men. Act like men. Don't act like predators, but act like men. If you're a man, if you want to act like a man, act like a man. All right? So there is a tremendous undermining going on in our culture now because if you eradicate and make men afraid to be men, you're going to destroy the culture. It's going to be conquered, and there will be an enslavement of the culture, and there won't be opportunities to do what we're doing right now anymore at all unless you're undercover. So then, that's just a little bit of a side thing because I live in this age and can't wait until it's over. Now, Paul has the most latitude of any person that I've ever read. He knows that he is what he is by the grace of God. He's aware of a universal homardiology and a universal Christ-centered soteriology. It has disarmed him of the stones he threw as a Pharisee. But he has no stones to throw as a man who has received mercy and who anticipates mercy being shown to all. Throughout Romans, Paul is committed to unity among the saints. No one was more committed to unity among the saints than Paul, except for Jesus, who prayed for it and died for it. Paul also died for Christian unity. He never did make it to Spain. 
never did make it to Rome. Remember in Romans 15, 25 to 32, he said, first, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why? Because he believed that a massive relief fund that he collected from the churches of northern and southern Greece, Macedonia, and Achaia, delivered to the persecuted and ostracized and disfranchised saints in Judea, would go a long way to practically producing a unity between the Greeks and the Jews, the Gentile and and Jewish Christians. And he died because of that. He died because he went that way in the interest of unity. It's more significant that Paul didn't make it to Spain than it would be if he did. It's more significant that he didn't make it to Rome because we can make these plans in this life if we want, and we can even make the plans of mission and missiology, but God disposes where we're going. And when he, sometimes when we die before our work is finished, we leave a greater testimony than if we had finished it. And that's what Paul, he so you can't say that anyone was more interested in unity and committed to it. In fact, Paul died in the practical effort to bring that unity about between the churches in Greece and the church in Jerusalem and in throughout Judea. So in Romans 15, 25 to 32, we already read of how he spoke of his long-term project to deliver a relief fund to the persecuted and disfranchised saints in Judea that was collected from churches in northern and southern Greece. He didn't know how it would be received. He asked them to pray in Rome because he said, after I deliver that, I'm coming to Rome and on the way to Ro- through Rome to Spain. He never, he died before that happened because he died while trying to bring about Christian unity, which he knew would be the greatest impetus to mission success. Paul never made it to Spain precisely because of the events that led to his final imprisonment and death arose from his trek first to Jerusalem. So no one is more committed to unity among the saints except for Messiah Jesus himself. Father, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. He prayed on the eve of his death by which he destroyed the enmity between Jew and Gentile. He died for unity. So did Paul in a much smaller way, of course. And so Romans fourteen 15, I'm, I'm going to breeze through this and take a fairly quick pass. Sometimes it's better to take a lean look at something rather than trying to stockade or stockpile something out of every verse until you forget the continuity. So we're going to finish Romans 14. Look at 15, verse 15. If because of food you are causing your brother pain, lupe, grief, you are no longer walking according to love. You see, he goes from the universe to what we eat because this brings us right down to everyday practicality in the Christian life. This is true sensitivity training. This is true learning how to live in social settings. The context here is the love feast where a lot of these problems came to the fore. The love feast was when all of the cells of the Christian saints got together for a social time and for the Eucharist and for worship. 
and for the word. And so this is where a lot of the problems arose. So Paul is speaking right into this. He says, if because of food you're causing your brother pain, you no longer are walking according to love. Over mere food preferences, do not destroy your brother. Now he uses this very strong language here, destroying your brother. It's like someone would say, I was devastated. I was destroyed he's not talking about eternal destruction there's actually idiots and i mean that who have produced commentaries that say that you you're causing your brother to perish for eternity by this that's not what paul's talking about he's using an idiom he's using strong language on purpose over mere food preferences do not destroy your brother for whom messiah died that's a potent little statement Giving the enormous issues of universal homardiology in Adam and universal salvation through the act of God in Jesus Christ, food is an infinitesimal matter. Messiah was destroyed to save your brother. So why would you, over your own personal preferences, destroy your brother for whom Messiah was destroyed in order to save him? Why would you destroy your brother for whom Messiah was destroyed? The rationale against being a Pharisee of freedom here is as strong as being against a Pharisee of legalism. Because Paul is always, and this verse really brings it out, he determines to know nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's going to think in terms of the gospel even when it comes down to the love feasts and certain food preferences. It motivates him in the details of life right down to the dinner table, right down to social engagements, right down to everyday affairs. He knows nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified, apart from the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Verse 15, verse 16, Romans 14. Therefore, do not let your good, in other words, your freedom is good. Agathon here is referring to their freedom. Do not let that which you have that's good, freedom, not to have to abstain from these foods. You, he's talking now to the strong in faith. Do not let your good, which is your freedom from strictures related to diet, be slandered. And how can their good or their freedom be slandered? If they take their freedom and offend their brother with it, that would slander the good of their freedom. It would misrepresent the good of their freedom. He's talking about stuff that for 2,000 years has put people off from Christianity. So... Our freedom, which is good, can be slandered if we misuse it by flaunting it before the unprepared. This abuse of freedom is not living according to the gospel. Just as much as Peter's withdrawal from the Gentiles and eating with the Gentiles, his withdrawal was not living worthy of the gospel. And Paul lambasted him for it. He knew better. Now this whole argument has led to a very rare definition by the apostle of the kingdom of God. And this is right where he defines the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God then is 
The kingdom of God is. Remember, Jesus said, let your kingdom come to the Father. That's the prayer. The kingdom has come. It has come already. It is not yet come in its fullness. It is not yet come in its fullness, but it, it, it takes on this form. Once again, this whole argument has led to a very rare definition by the apostle of the kingdom of God in Romans fourteen seventeen. For you see, he says, the kingdom of God does not consist of questions and preferences and restrictions regarding food and drink. Now, I expanded that pretty heavily because if you just read the kingdom of God is not food and drink, you, don't, you say, what do you mean by that? He says the kingdom of God does not consist of questions, preferences, arguments, restrictions regarding food and drink. The kingdom of God isn't all about dietary legalism or dietary freedoms. It's not about those things at all. On the contrary, he says, it is, or it consists of. Back in the old days, they would say quidsit. That's the Latin. But they developed a word from quidsit called quiddity, the whatness of a thing. Quiddity is actually a word Lonergan used it all the time. Quiddity because it's quidsit. It comes from the Latin quidsit. What is it? It's the whatness of a thing. It's what the essential elements of a thing are. Are the quiddity. What are the what is the quiddity of the kingdom of God? Here it is. It is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. The kingdom of God is. Paul only says that one other place in all of his epistles. And it's first Corinthians four twenty when he says, The kingdom of God is not talk, but power. See, this is the same thing. It is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God has overtaken you, if that is your experience in some measure. What is righteousness? Here, righteousness is the rectitude produced by the Holy Spirit. We must understand this word righteousness. There are nuances of it. There's nuances of the word faith when we talk about the... Pistis Christu, we're talking about the faithfulness of Christ. But when we talk about faith in the context that we're looking at right now, it's someone's settled conviction. Paul has a settled conviction that he can eat meat that is forbidden to other people and that he can drink wine that is forbidden to other people. He has this settled conviction And he says at the end of Romans, something that's misunderstood, if it's not faith, it's sin. Anything outside of faith is sin. He's saying simply this. If you do something you don't know is right and don't have a settled conviction about it, then what you do is sin. Now, we can come right down to practical matters about this. Now, we watch movies. Now, someone will say, well, this movie has this, 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 and this in it. And you think, wow, I don't think the Lord would want me to watch that movie. But I don't know. I don't know if he would or not, given the previews, given the scene, given my friend's description of the movie. I don't know. So I'll watch it anyways. That is doing something without the settled conviction of faith, and it's sin. You say, we never thought you'd talk like that again. I am talking like that again. 
That's just one thing. You can, this thing can fan out to a thousand different applications in life. But ra- righteousness in this context is the rectitude or the approved living produced by the Holy Spirit. Namely, the love that is poured out in the hearts of the saints. Righteousness here is the love that is poured out in the hearts of the saints. There is a remarkable correlation here between Romans 14, 17, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Love actually takes the place of righteousness and righteousness the place of love in a comparison between Romans 14, 17, the quiddity of the kingdom of God and the quiddity of the fruit of the Spirit are one. The kingdom of God is the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that the Spirit produces. Righteousness, therefore, consists of love. The righteousness that constitutes the kingdom of God is precisely the love that gladly limits its freedom. If its freedom causes pain to its siblings... Now, that'll be applied across the board in life. Karl Barth wrote rightly about this love in his commentary on Romans, and he said this, For the love of God in Christ Jesus is the oneness of the love of God towards men and the love of men towards God. He always used the word men, and he meant people in general. I'll say that again. The love of God in Christ Jesus is the oneness of the love of God toward people and the love of people toward God. In other words, as we've taught, the gift of God's love, the gift of his own love, is the gift of God's own love. Our love for God and our love for others is God's gift to us. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is also peace. But let me say this again, because here's the practical and pastoral matter. The righteousness that constitutes the kingdom of God is precisely the love that gladly limits its own freedom if it understands that that freedom causes pain to one's siblings. Now, I've been on the side of this, sadly, and I thought of it today with regret, and and God has forgiven me. But there are times when I have exercised my freedom in social situations in front of people that were not prepared for that kind of freedom themselves. In fact, for they were not prepared to partake in certain things that you partake of socially in terms of eating and drinking, and therefore it caused them to stumble. And if you go to certain places and you have brethren around you're at a deck party and you have brethren around you know that your brother in Christ you know that your brother in Christ has a predilection to alcoholism and you don't care because you've got freedom to drink in moderation you think you've got freedom to drink so you you don't limit your freedom for his sake and not drink and you choose not to limit your freedom for his sake You may be a cause of stumbling. In fact, you may be such a cause of stumbling as to cause him to relapse into alcoholism again. That's called destroying your brother. Don't let your good 
be slandered as evil. And that's a very important thing. Now, there are people that have that predilection, and it truly is a difficulty, and it truly is, I believe, a disease as well as a condition under sin. When people know they have it, and they come to your house, and they say to you, I don't care if you drink socially, it doesn't bother me, that's one thing. If you know it bothers them, you don't drink while the world stands on in this age. You don't do it. Paul didn't do it. That's love. It gladly limits its freedom. If its freedom causes pain to one's sibling or causes them to trip up. So there is, now I'm going to, I said that because Paul actually explicitly states this thing with regard to wine and meat. Now, why is the kingdom called peace? The kingdom of God is peace, and that means both intra-psychic, that is within the soul of the individual, and, or we call it esoteric tranquility, peace. As well as a social or exoteric harmony among believers. The kingdom of God is peace. Jesus said, have salt among yourselves and live at peace with one another. That peace is the kingdom of God. All of Romans is a bid for peace. Now, as Romans 5.1 says, and we're going to teach this clearly, we have all been rectified by the faithfulness of the Messiah unto death. The faithfulness of Christ unto death has rectified me, set me right. Set you right, set us all right. We have all been rectified by the faithfulness of the Messiah unto death and have peace with God. Therefore, being rectified, By the faithfulness of Christ, we have peace with God, is how Romans 5.1 should be translated. This peace is also the fruit of the Spirit, which is the real food of the kingdom of God. Likewise, joy is the fruit of the Spirit. You know that you have the joy that is a fruit of the Spirit and not just the stimulation of the flesh, when we desire to be helpers of the joy of others, 2 Corinthians one twenty four, Paul says, we're not dominators of your faith, but helpers of your joy. And Jesus said, I've spoken these things to you, John 15, so that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be full. So joy is the fruit of the Spirit. When we have this joy, we desire to be helpers of the joy of others, not Kill joys. Pharisees kill joys. Legalistic Christians kill joys. Freedom Pharisees kill joys. Righteousness, peace, and joy in and by the Holy Spirit. In and by the Holy Spirit. That qualifies it. Are the constituents or the quiddity, the whatness of the kingdom of God. They're dynamically and essentially equivalent to love, joy, and peace. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. And on the, at the same time, they are the opposite of the constituents or the quiddity of the passing age, the cosmos. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, 
none of which, says John in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, has anything to do with the love of the Father. That is, with the love that the Father pours out in our hearts. The pride of life is the big thing in Romans. The pride of life is a constituent of the cosmos, boastful of your knowledge, boastful of your culture, boastful of your heritage, boastful of your ethnicity, boastful of this, boastful of that. It's all hooper ephenos, which is the pride of showing yourself to be above others. Now, told you it was going to be practical. When we look at the universal homardiology that sets up a universal soteriology in Romans the Epistle, we see that Paul, in the Holy Spirit, actually demolishes distinctions even between the righteous and the unrighteous. Between believers and unbelievers, he demolishes the distinctions by saying that God has shut up everyone in unbelief in order to have mercy upon all. There is no, Paul dismantles any ideas of distinctions between the unrighteous and the righteous, between the believing and the unbelieving. So how much more does he demolish the distinctions between the so-called weak in faith and the so-called strong in faith? God justifies the ungodly. Romans 4, 5. So when we look at this, the universe and then what we eat, we're saying that Paul applies a universal saving act of God in Christ to a very local problem that gets right down to what we eat in our love feasts in Rome or what we do in everyday life in this world. And so, my a fortiori is, if Paul actually demolishes distinctions between the righteous and the unrighteous, precisely because God justifies the ungodly, in other words, if there is ultimately no real segregation or separation between those with and without faith, how much more should there be no judgment or hostility between the weak and the strong in faith? Romans 14, 18, look at this. Anyone who serves the Messiah in this way, anyone who serves the Messiah in this way, the word duluo serves as a slave, an imperial slave, all the way back to Romans 1, 1. Anyone who serves the Messiah in this way, in what way? In the way of righteousness, which is a love that constantly is willing to limit its freedom. Love limits its freedom for the sake of others, Ultimate illustration, Jesus Christ limiting his freedom down to his very mobility as a man on the cross for the liberation of the human race. So, anyone who serves the Messiah in this way, in the righteousness that is the love that willingly limits its freedom, if it sees that its freedom will hurt a brother or a sister, Anyone who, and this happens when you get into political discussions. You want to make your political point, and you do so at the hurt of a fellow believer who may have other political convictions. It's better not to even talk about politics, then, isn't it? If you're going to free, if you're going to hurt 
your sister or your brother. That's not love. You stopped walking in love right there. So goes along other it goes a, a, a long ways every other place too. You may not be a Pittsburgh Pirate fan. I won't fight with you about it. You can be a San Diego fan if you want. They're going to get beat tonight by the Pirates. That's not a prophecy. I don't know that. That's just wishful thinking. But anyways, Romans 14, 18, anyone who serves the Messiah in this way, that is in the way of righteousness, in the way that follows after peace, in the way that is joy in the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, whereunto is excessiveness, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, joy in the Holy Spirit is different from any other joy. He who serves as a slave, an imperial slave, the Messiah, in this way, is pleasing to God and approved by people. People look at this kind of Christianity and say, I get it. Wow, that's phenomenal, instead of slandering it because of the misrepresentation of Jesus Christ by those who don't walk in love. In fact, the similar truth is found in the Tanakh, which is the Jewish translation of the Nevi'im, the prophets, the Ketuvim, the writings, and the Torah. I read it today, the Tanakh of Proverbs sixteen seven. When the Lord is pleased with a man's conduct, he, that is God, may even turn his enemies into allies. When God is pleased with a man's conduct, Serving Messiah with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. God might even take your enemies and turn them into your allies. Romans fourteen nineteen. The point is you serve Christ. Who do you who do you seek to please? Is a big question. Whose approval do you seek in this life? Paul said, if I sought the approval of men, I would no longer be the servant of Christ. But if you seek only the approval of Christ, you might find that people will respect you. People will respect the Christianity that limits its freedom by love. And they see it. And Jesus said, if you love one another as I've loved you, the whole world's going to know. You're my disciples. They'll respect it. Why doesn't the world at large respect Christianity? Because it ain't this. It's not this. In many cases. Some cases it is. Verse 14. So then, so then, let us pursue the things that make for peace and mutual edification. If you wanted to take that verse, you could almost sum up. That's what Paul's doing. Sum up the letter in one thing. What do you want to happen in Rome? I want mutual edification and following after peace instead of mutual hostility and resentment. But he builds Romans around this. This is one of those verses that seems to encapsulate Paul's practical purpose for writing the epistle. In a way, that's all that Paul's doing in terms of his pastoral exhortation to the saints in Rome. Romans 14.20. Let me finish this off because there's some enlightening tidbits here. There's some lights in the darkness in this little thing. They'll pop as I read this. Romans 14.20. Speaking to the strong. You've got to know who he's talking to. He's speaking to the so-called strong in faith. Do not destroy the work of God. What's the work of God? Your brother is the work of God. 
We're saved. We've been saved by grace through the faithfulness of Messiah, not of ourselves. And we are his workmanship. We are his temple. Do not destroy the work of God. That is, destroy your brother, your sibling. God's temple, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, on, a, on account of such a little thing as food. 21, it is a noble thing not to eat meat or to drink wine if by these things you trip up your sibling. Keep the faith that you can do these things. Listen to the the way I've expanded this to give the sense so you understand what he's saying here. Keep the faith that you can do these things. That's what he's talking about. If you have faith, he's talking about back in 1414, the Lord Jesus has convinced me, Paul said, that everything is clean, that nothing is unclean in itself. But there's a brother that hasn't yet been convinced by the Lord Jesus of this. I respect him. I give him latitude. I'll give him a wide swathe. I'm not going to do something that offends him. I'll have my faith that I can do these things between me and God alone, and I'm not going to flaunt it. If I'm with Aquila and Priscilla at their house, and they say, well, these steaks are fantastic. Oh, by the way, they were offered to idols last night in the strip district. He says, we don't care. The three of us don't care. We'll sit down and eat meat. We have that faith. But if a brother doesn't have that persuasion yet, I'm not going to eat that meat while the world stands, he says. That's love. See, we're talking about living Worthily of the gospel. So he says it's a noble thing not to eat meat or to drink wine if by these things you trip up your sibling. Keep the faith that you can do these things between yourself and God. It's a polite way of saying shut up in a social gathering. Blessed is the person who does not incur self-condemnation for doing what he himself approves. What is he saying here? Blessed are you if you go to that place where a person, a recovering alcoholic brother, I'm using only an example here, is there. And you go away from there condemned because you had to flaunt your liberty that you can drink in moderation and you caused the relapse in him. What are you doing? You're condemned. You're condemned now. You're condemned in your conscience. You feel lousy. You feel like, a lot of things that are not pleasant. So what he's saying is here, keep the faith that you can do these things between yourself and God because happy is the person who does not incur self-condemnation for doing what he himself approves. You do what you, you've approved of, you do what you're convinced you can do, but you do it at the expense of a brother. You go away from that party, you think later that night, look what I've done to him. Look what I did to her. You've condemned yourself. In other words, if you know that it's okay to eat meat and to drink wine, but you are in a love feast with other saints who disapprove of these things, and because they haven't yet been persuaded by the Lord, happy are you if you know that you can eat and drink, but don't. Because if you did, your own conscience would condemn you when you consider that you unduly offended your brothers and sisters. In the next verse, Paul addresses another type of person who belongs to a group that we may call the procrastinators. There's a lot of Christians in this place. 
procrastination. These are not people like Thomas who doubted the resurrection of Jesus. They very much believed in the resurrection of Jesus. We're not talking about that here. They are saints, believers in Jesus and in his resurrection, but they're not convinced one way or another whether eating certain foods or drinking wine is okay for them. They're not convinced. They don't know. So he says to you guys, if you don't know, don't. If you're procrastinating, don't do it. Because then you'll offend your own conscience. So verse, that's what it means. That's what leads up to this 1423. People just quote that verse. If it's not faith, it's sin. As if that's just a general principle. It is not. It fits in this context. Notice 1423. But whoever is unconvinced that they are free to eat or drink is condemned if he eats. Because his eating is not a result of a settled conviction. That's the faith. His eating is not a result of a settled conviction that he can do so. Here's the Jewish Christian. He says, I don't know if I can eat this certain food. In Corinthians, it was a food offered to idols. And it was very offensive to that Jewish Christian. But he says, well, I see some people are doing it. I don't know if I can or I can't. But he's doubting, he's procrastinating, so he does eat, and then he condemns himself for eating because he doesn't have a settled conviction that he can do it. That's what it means. If it's not faith or a settled conviction, then it's sin. There are many things in our lives, and still, and I've been a Christian for a long time, but there are many things in my life that I don't, that I don't have a settled conviction about, so I don't do it. And there are some things I have a settled conviction about that I can do. And so I watch it without condemnation. A good movie. But there's violence in the movie. Yeah, but the right people get it. You know what I'm saying? Anyways. So. Whoever is unconvinced that they're free to eat or drink is condemned if he eats. Why? Because he's eating is not a result of a settled conviction that he can do so. And everything that does not proceed from faith, that means everything that you do in situations like this that do not come from a settled conviction that such a thing is approved by God, then it's sin or complicity with the reign of sin. All that Paul is saying and advising here is exhortation with a view to making peace, even in the practical situations of the love feasts, especially in the love feasts, where it's evident that much offense was being created and where those offenses were incurring judgmental reactions among the saints. Paul not only deals with universal things in Romans, therefore, that's why I called this message the universe and what we eat, two extremes. Paul not only deals with the universal things in Romans, but also with the things that make for everyday peace. All of Romans is geared toward peace. All of Romans in one sense is Psalm 85, 8. The the Lord, Yahweh, speaks peace to his people. And it's about peace among fellow participants of fellowship with God's Son. That's why in the last verse, in the main body of the epistle of Paul, Paul expresses this wish in Romans 15, 13. Now may God, the source of hope, completely fill you up with joy and peace. Peace in believing so that you may overflow with hope. And there it is again. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you'll bring home the things that were taught so that they can have effective application in the trenches of life, in the everyday experience of our living, in our livingness in this life. We ask this in Jesus' name.